Hi, everyone, and welcome again to another one of my Gaudi Mitzvahs 22.com podcasts on Podbeam and YouTube videos. I am joined by a repeat customer, my former colleague and friend, the irascible Dr. Rodney Hauser, former chair of the theology department at DeSales University, I think happily the form, former chair of uh, the theology faculty, uh, theology department at DeSales University. Anyway, we're continuing on. Uh, my apologies that it's been so long since our last installment on Vatican II, but life has intervened. We're both busy and I'm doing other podcasts. Rodney's got other things to do, but hopefully we can get on a more routine schedule. With Our last, uh, our last podcast episode on Vatican II was on Dei Verbum, uh, the dogmatic constitution on, on revelation that uh, is in Vatican II. One of the last documents promulgated by the council in the last session in 1965, even though it was one of the very first documents that was proposed. Uh, but the schema that was pr proposed, which was called De Fontibus Revelationis, all right, on the, on the sources of revelation, was rejected by the council fathers in a kind of a controversial move. We discussed all of this last time. Uh, but anyway, we, we felt like there were some ambiguities that we sort of left hanging in the, in, the last, uh, in the last video. So we thought instead of moving on to Lumen Gentium, which is going to be our next topic after this one, that we would, we would come back to Dei Verbum again and dwell on some topics of some importance. In particular, I'd like to revisit the sort of the, the relationship between scripture and tradition. But also we need to talk a little bit at more length at the... Uh, the discussion of uh, scriptural inspiration and the concept of scriptural inerrancy uh, as a result of that inspiration. So I'm going to just do a brief recap here, and then I'm going to turn it over to Rodney to, to discuss uh, De Fontibus Revelationis, right? Rodney, you're going to talk about the original schema that was rejected? Okay. Sure. I just yeah. want to remind viewers, all right, that uh, the theological commission that was established by Pope John before the council started to develop the various schemata, as they're called, basically the rough drafts of the documents that eventually became the documents of Vatican II. And the, whole, the, the, the theological commission was run by Alfredo Ottaviani, Cardinal Ottaviani, who was very, very, very traditional and developed all these schemata that were pretty much simply a reiteration of everything from in Roman theology for the previous 100 years. Not that there was anything, not that there's anything wrong with that. Not that there's anything horribly wrong with that. It's just, it, it doesn't really rise to the level of, 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 of what the council fathers wanted, because why have a council at all? If you're just going to rubber stamp everything that has been going on in, in the, in the neo-scholastic world for the past hundred years. So the council fathers uh, rejected De Fontibus Revelationis, but it was kind of controversial when they did because the, the document itself was not put up for a vote, which was then rejected. What was proposed was simply, let's stop the conversation. Now, in order to stop the conversation on the floor of a council, you need a two-thirds supermajority to do that. They did not achieve the two-thirds supermajority to stop the conversation. But Pope John intervened and said, there's enough opposition here. We need to revisit this. And so he sent the document back to a revised theological commission that now had members on it that were a little more in the Joseph Ratzinger school of thought, as well as the Ottaviani school of thought, which set up then a kind of 
conflict between the between the more uh, the more revisionist theologians and the more traditional theologians. And that conflict resulted in this document not really seeing the light of day and being voted on until 1965, three years later. Uh, so let's I'm going to. So and that's all necessary background in order to understand the two main controversies, which were that were holding things up, whether or not tradition represents a second strand of revelation alongside of scripture or whether there is scripture what's called the material sufficiency of scripture where the scripture contains everything needed for our salvation and tradition is just kind of an elaboration upon that so we did with that. and then of course scriptural inerrancy so now let's turn to the original schemata in order to un better understand why it is that Dei Verbum was so significant and what it does say later on so go ahead Rodney you can introduce now the the original schemata Yes. I, so I'll begin by making, uh, I think, some general statements about the schema overall and, and in comparing it a little bit with Dave Verbum yeah. overall before getting. And then there's some weeds that we have to get into. It you go. Time. Go on. Yeah. Do it. So it's just for our readers information. Um, Joe Kamanchak has done a beautiful translation of De Fontibus, uh, which can be found online. So if you just type in uh, De, Fonti, De, De Fontibus, uh uh, revolution, whatever that is. Um, Revela revelationis. Yeah, revelationis. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, PDF, English translation, something like that. You, you'll find this translation. And I think it's if anybody who really wants to understand Dave um, really probably needs to read that original thing and then read Dave Verbum to see the changes, right? Because the things yeah. that Dave Verbum decided to say and things that Dave Verbum decided not to say, I think, are, are very, very significant. In general, I, I, um, and this is, this kind of also takes us into chapter one just a little bit, the, fir the first chapter of the council. I would say two big differences in general. <clears throat> the, the first big difference is uh, De Fontibus is written in a very defensive tone. Okay, it's it's not so much that what they say is not true, right? It's the problem isn't that they're saying things that Catholics don't believe, or you know, or they're not saying things Catholics believe. It's the the style of the document is almost completely determined by their enemies, and and these enemies are Protestantism on the one hand and modernism on the other. So the whole council has the or the whole document is is uh, defending. Catholic. Defensive tone. Yes, defending Catholic. That was a complaint of Ratzinger later on. It was absolutely. too defensive. Okay, yes, go ahead. Absolutely. And the danger with that is, and this is just something that's a kind of general theological truth, I think, but I've really grown to appreciate it looking at this. You end up allowing your opponent to set the terms of the debate. And so you start thinking in the very narrow terms that Catholicism ought to be able to break out of Catholic Catholica, according to the whole, right? You know, so um, it, it, it Baltazar says, "He who sees more wins," and uh, and Catholics have always delighted in the fact that they were able to take the partial truths of Platonism and the partial truths of this and the and put them all together in this big Catholic cathedral, and they and hold them together in a way. When you just do theology defensively. If Protestants believe sola scriptura, we believe in scripture and tradition. If moderates say the Bible has errors, we're going to talk plenary inerrance, you know, verbal inerrance, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Again, you end up doing a kind of theology that really it feels foreign to the theology of the fathers and even Thomas, 
you find out that the fathers and Thomas don't have these fixations that you find in De Fontibus, precisely because they didn't have modernity and Protestantism to kind of deal with. They did not have a fixation on epistemic certitude in a propositionalist register. Yes, that's exactly right. So that leads me then to kind of the point that, that about chapter one, I think that is really a, a kind of important thing. When chapter one starts talking about revelation, they talk about it in, term, in terms of God's self-giving. What being given in revelation is the very life of God. He's, he's handing himself over, traditio, right? Um, it, through the Holy Spirit, et cetera, in the Son, and, and obviously, if you start that way, you're, you have to immediately appreciate the fact that, of course, we're never going to totally fathom this. It's, it's, it's bottomless and it's mystery, right? Now, that doesn't mean, and this is, we have to be very careful because some progressives say um, Dei Verbum rejects propositional revelation kind of altogether. That's nonsense. Of course, yeah. e- even though God is mysterious, doesn't mean you can't say anything true about God. That would be a disaster, right? It would Then everything would be kind of up for grabs. So it, it does not reject the propositional aspect of revelation. It doesn't reduce revelation to the propositional aspect. That's how I'd want to put it, right? Yeah. And so, I think that's very true. That's the point Aidan Nichols makes in his book, Conciliar Octet, as well. Yes, yes. And and, and Ratzinger also, in his commentary on Dave Verbum, really emphasizes this. Yeah. This leads me to a little aside, and I'll let you jump in because I because I because I want to get pick your brain about this. But uh, uh, Chap and I, Larry and I, have a common friend, uh, Father Robert in Belly, who emails us sometimes little tidbits of interesting information and and stuff like that. And uh, recently, he sent us an email about a debate going on in Germany um, between a couple different uh, schools of German thought about Ratzinger's dissertation on Bonaventure's Theology of History, which was written at one of his, well, it wasn't his director, but one of the guys on his committee was Schmaus, if I'm not mistaken. I think I Michael Schmaus. Yes, who was a, who was a um, manualist uh, theologian, very, yes. very, very, very brilliant. But he was apparently deeply troubled by Ratzinger's dissertation, which precisely presents revelation more in narrative salvation historical terms. So this was Ratzinger's, right out of the gate, this was Ratzinger's niche, I would say, is theology of revelation. He had his doctorate already, but this was his his, uh, habilitation. Habilitation. It's it's a strange German thing. You essentially have to write two dissertations. And this was the the second one. (laughs) Right, exactly. Right. And and just the, the fact that that debate is still going on in Germany, uh, whether Schmaus was right or whether Ratzinger was right, shows you that this is a, you know, this is a really kind of enormous uh, issue. And Dave Verbin clearly, it seems to me, weighs in on a more salvation historical approach, a more personalist approach, that first what we receive in Revelation is the person of God, you know, and uh and that then is going to get, of course, encapsulated in the words of scripture and in the words of tradition. But that's not the focus of Dave. You know, the, the, the words come yeah. out of the prior giving, you know. What's interesting about that is that chapter one begins with something that is not in De Fontibus Revelationis at all, uh, which is what is revelation as such? 
right? Yes. Chapter yeah. one of Dave Erbum is saying, well, yeah. we're talking about revelation here. Maybe we should define it, yes. which the original schema didn't do. Right. All right. And so this is kind of an entirely new thing that Dave Erbum is introducing, not a modification of De Fontibus, nor something supplemented at the end. This is a brand new thing. And it, it strikes me. Uh, Father Lewis Britton has a book out by Word on Word on Fire called Reclaiming Vatican II. And I was rereading that last night. And he makes the point that in this chapter one, Dei Verbum uh, goes out of its way to emphasize that revelation as such is the word who is the incarnate Christ. And this is a point I made in the last episode as well. This is very and he quotes Balthazar. And it, this is very Balthazarian that revelation as such is the word Christ. Yep. And this is going to have then a bearing then on the relationship between scripture and tradition as Dave Verbum unfolds it, because it is true that the scripture is so, you know, the word of the Lord and all that, but in a very derivative sense, simply that it is the spirit privileged testimony to revelation as such. Yes. Then you have the incarnation of the word in sacrament and church and in doctrine, which yes. is in some ways not inferior to the word in scripture. It mm -hmm. stands under scripture, but it is also the home of scripture. All right. And, and it's main interpreter. So it's a strange interplay. But ultimately, the ultimate revelation is Christ as such. God speaks to us. God is his own self exegesis, if you will, in yes. Christ. This is the this is the movement forward that Dei Verbum is bringing. Anyway, I'm sorry I interrupted. Go ahead. No, you didn't interrupt that. I wanted to I wanted you to weigh in there because that's a, that's exactly it. Right. So the, 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 the that chapter one speaks of the words and deeds. And, and, and I think it was on maybe Facebook or something. One of the people that had watched our last thing said, you guys should say something about this words and deeds thing, you know, because it is yeah. it is important. And I and I agree that it is um, the, the point here would be that. And by the, the way, just yeah. side note. The yes. new document from the DDF on the sacraments is called Justice Verbiscu, which is deeds and words, yes. <laughs> deeds and words. I don't think that's an accident. I think that's interesting. I think that's straight from Dave Verbum. I really do. Yeah, and, I do, too. Uh, anyway, and go it's, ahead. It's, and, and it's interesting because, again, there's a certain kind of progressive that wants to almost deny the whole word element altogether. It's all just yeah. mystery and, and and stories, and you can't and you can't say anything about it. So it doesn't matter if you mess with the words of institution or or things like that because they're just words anyhow. That's right. And this, this document is strongly saying no, no, no. Words matter, and 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 of course they matter. I mean that you know, uh, and I'm I was very relieved to to see this document come out because this has been an abuse uh, that priests have been taking for years. One of my pet peeves is when. A priest says, look, not on our sins, but on our faith. Instead of saying, look, not on our sins, but on the faith of your church. That's right. Thing. Yeah. And, and Well, what's interesting, and the document brings it out, and we don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole, but what Justice Verbiscu, the new document Verbiscu says, is that that represents a form of clericalism. Yes. It's, the, the priest <laughs> is essentially saying, I own this liturgy. It's mine doesn't belong to the church or the faithful or the people sitting in front of me. It's plastic and I can do whatever I want with it because I'm a priest. Yep. Uh, and yet so many liberal priests are also the ones most often speaking against clericalism and patriarchy and all that sort of stuff. And they yep. turn around on the most paternalistic, clericalistic jerks out there. And you dare not call them on it lest they, you know, yeah. lest they get angry with you or whatever. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's finally a very welcome document. I hope it's a document with teeth. And then yeah. they and they really clamp down on on some liturgical abuses that are out there because they should. Yes. 
Yeah. No, anyway, absolutely. back to back to uh, Dave Araboom. Yeah, back to words and deeds again. And so um, the text, it, it does a nice job, I think, of, of privileging in some sense the action of Christ in history and the action of God in the Old Testament, too, through the prophets and the great, yeah. you know, the great patriarchs and stuff like that. And we mentioned this last uh, episode, but the end of John's gospel says, you know, there aren't enough books in the world that can contain all the things that Jesus said and did, which That's is right. a way of saying the deed is is infinitely rich. And what this is going to allow for then is, and, and this is going to be an interesting, and this was contentious at, at, the, at the council, the notion of doctrine developing organically, the need to kind of ever return back to the original deeds and words of Christ in order to make sure that we're growing and understanding these things. And there's a yeah. real growth, which some people were resi resisted, you know, uh, in the thing, but, you know, it goes all the way back to uh, Vincent of, of Lorraine, who also spoke of uh, an organic growth in understanding. And of course, how could you say there isn't with, with doctrines like the Trinity or the assumption of Mary into heaven? Of course, there's a that that's a richer under. I mean, Aquinas denied the Immaculate Conception. Yeah, right? he, that was not he, he did, was not in favor of it. I mean, clearly, there's been a development of doctrine there under the guiding of the Holy Spirit that, that um, results from a deeper understanding of Mary, right? Um, so, so the words and deeds thing, I think, is really important because the words are in service of the deeds. And that's why there can be that's why there can be more and more words <laughs> going forward, right? There, you know, the more and more ink is spilled because we're still trying to understand the richness of those deeds. That's that's uh, yeah. why I would put it. Yeah, I think that's excellent. And that 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 coming together of word and deed that it, it, and it the the deeds are, of course, foundational uh, in terms of the events, you know, the Paschal mystery, what Christ did and so forth. But also, you know, we, we can't ignore the fact that Christ was a teacher. All right. right? He was a teacher. Yeah, he right. yeah. he taught things yeah. didactically. Go yeah. read the Sermon on the Mount. There's not a whole lot of obscurity in the Sermon on the Mount. You've yeah. heard it said of old. Well, I'm, I'm here to tell you something else, dudes. Here yes. it is. All right. Yeah. And, and, and this is the way it's going to be. All right. And so, yeah, there is a didactic element. Absolutely. Yes. And, and it is therefore incorrect to say that Dave Verboom and Vatican II sanctioned pure narrative theology and, and downplayed propositional truths. Not, not true at all. And in fact, uh, von Balthasar and Ratzinger and de Lubach and von Hildebrand and, and, and Bouillet and even Congar after yep. the council were saying, this is not what the council was teaching. Come on. Absolutely. Yeah, no, exactly. Which I think kind of leads us then to that, uh, uh, that second, that second question, or the, maybe it's the first question we're really tackling in terms of a uh, detail here is the, and, and you might have more to say about this than I do, but I just have a couple things I want to say is the, uh, the question of the relationship between scripture and tradition. So the way I read the document, it seems to me that both scripture and tradition grow out of revelation, right? In other exactly. words, exactly theme of revelation and it's and, and scripture captures it in one way and tradition, you know, captures it and develops it in, in another. It's it, the reason it, ha it can't just be contained in scripture alone is because it's too rich. It, yeah. It's, it's it, there is this constant surplus of mystery in there. So the way it kind of broke down, I'll just give the quick kind of the 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 um, story a little bit of how it kind of broke down is you had De Fontibus, which treated um, 
scripture and tradition as two distinct sources of revelation. Some of it's in this bottle and some of it's in this bottle. That's kind of how it reads almost. I hate to characterize yeah. it, but it does kind of read like that. Um, there was a guy named, I think, Geiselman. You can correct me on this, but I think that's right, who did uh, had done some research prior to the council. He was at the council, and he said this part part approach cannot be found in the tradition. It's not in the fathers. It's not in Thomas. It's not even in Trent. He had done some serious work on Trent. Yeah, and uh, and he and he showed that it wasn't in Trent. Joseph Rotzinger, after the council, took up the question again. He has a very important article on Trent's teaching and revelation in his little book. That little book called God's Word. It's only about a hundred pages long, but it's the densest hundred pages you'll ever read. And it's very complicated stuff. Classic, classic Rotzinger. Yeah, yeah, it's so good. It's a it's a brilliant essay. I think he wrote it in like sixty six or sixty seven. 67, yeah. I do believe. Yeah. yeah, he actually pushes back against Geiselman a bit. And he says what he was actually trying to, what he, the conclusion he drew from this, his, his research was correct, but the conclusion he drew from it was overstated because he really was pushing for something like the sufficiency of scripture, something almost material like, sufficiency of scripture. Yeah. Right. And, and, this, and almost like a school of scriptura from a Catholic perspective. Right. Um, and, Rotzinger said that just cannot work. There's no way that we're going to find a text that gives us certitude about the Immaculate Conception or the Assumption of Mary into heaven. Like it, we have to admit that there are things that come from tradition that you're not going to find clear scripture support. You yeah. might, yeah. I think Rotzinger's view would be you're not going to find smoking gun clear scriptural justification for the later dogmas, yep. but you at the very least can find their seed. Absolutely, you can find their seed. So, for example, in his book. Daughter Zion, which I recommend yeah. to everybody, Ratzinger's book. Yep. He goes to the Annunciation scene in his, you know, in, in trying to, in a sense, defend and explain the dogma of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. And he looks at that Greek term that the angel Gabriel uses when he addresses Mary, Kaira Maria, Kekaritomene in Greek. Kekaritomene is translated in the Latin, plena gratia, full of grace, full of grace. Uh, and what kekaitomene in Greek literally means is deeply, highly favored to the utmost degree kind of kind of a thing. And then he traces the Old Testament use of kekaitomene in the Septuagint and notes that the term is used with regard to Israel as God's daughter, as the daughter Zion, hence the title of the book. And he concludes from that that Mary represents, therefore, the fulfillment of Zion. That all God ever wanted out of Israel was a perfect yes, a perfect yes, please enter in. And so he waited. And that's why when Mary says, okay, yeah, sure, be it done to me according to the angel leaves. And with that, the angel departs. All right, boom. That's all the all of history had been waiting for a single human being to say yes in a perfect way. So Rotzinger takes from that, okay, her yes had to be perfect. And that explains the dogma of the American conception. She had to be in some sense sinless. Okay, so I'm, I don't want to get down it, but that's an example of, of the kind of use of tradition to explain scripture or scripture to explain tradition that yes. Rotzinger is talking about here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. So what Rotzinger claims about the Geiselman thing that at the council is that the, the it seems that, that Geiselman didn't he he kind of wanted to have a sentence in there that implied that scripture by itself could stand without the help of, of tradition, right? A little bit. And we mentioned this last 
episode that in fact the council did not say that and in fact it said just the opposite in some sense it said yeah. scripture alone is not sufficient for the certitude that's right and all that that's stuff. right and that was an important breakthrough where Rotzinger claims that some people pushed back against the Geiselman camp and said no that you're going too far and and what he claims and I this is what I was trying to get at the beginning is that Dave Urban reframes the question it, it's the question is part found in scripture and part found in tradition is the wrong way to frame the question. It's right. the single unfolding of the one revelation of God and Jesus Christ that it's, is going to be contained in one way in scripture, a normative canonized way, but yet it's still going to keep unraveling in tradition to help us continue to understand, you know, the thing. I think Ratzinger talks about the fact that, um, I'm pretty sure it's in this text where he talks about the fact that the the disciples are still thinking in terms of kingdom of God, which is a you know the preaching of Jesus is very much the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, and that's very much in the disciples' mind. And of course, their understanding is that, that he's going to drive out the Romans and he's going to restore the kingdom to Israel and you know and clean the temple up and all that good stuff. Um, and I just discovered this. I'm I'm teaching Christology. I'm using the Oaks book. Of course, you know, you know, the Oaks book, you, you used to use it. Infinity um, dwindled to infancy. A great yeah, it's a book. beautiful book. It's a beautiful book. And uh, he mentions the fact that even in Acts, after the resurrection, the disciples asked Jesus in his po in a post-resurrection appearance, now now are you going to restore the kingdom? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, now is the time. Finally. All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, and of course that they're still missing the point. Even post-resurrection, they're missing the point. And then it dawns on them that, oh, no, the, the imminent end is not necessarily going to happen, right? We're not going to restore the kingdom to Israel in some you know, right. uh, consummated way, which means then we now need to establish the church in history to do the work of Christ going forward until the kingdom is established. Now, that's a development, uh, right, of, of doctrine already in the, in the New Testament where they they change their thinking from a more kingdom-centered thinking to a more church-centered thinking, Ratzinger claims. It's kind of strange that that already, in some weird way, happens within Scripture. You know, yeah. there's already kind of almost a kind of development happening within the, the time period. That's of right. That's right. New Testament. And that's this organic way of thinking about Revelation, then, as a kind of unfolding of the self-giving of God, gets you away from having to say part and part. And that both pushes back against the Roman theology that they found to boost, but it also pushes back against the reformers. The Protestants were at the council who were attending and watching were not happy with that passage. They weren't. Karl Barth said, Karl Barth said, well, at least Dave Verbum of its five chapters, three deal with scripture and two deal with a tradition. At least we get the numerical advantage. Yeah. Right. But he was disappointed and saying, well, they did have to toss that thing in there about tradition actually containing revelation that's not in scripture. Yeah. And I think it was Oscar Coleman, if I'm not mistaken, who was also there and was complaining about that thing. Um, but but Rotzinger was saying, again, it, when you push these guys on this, what they're going to say is, look, we've we've gotten so good at biblical exegesis that we can actually understand scripture in a in a way that's not going to. There's no, there'll be no more divisions because of interpreting scripture because we're going to get so good at it. They were so confident in the historical critical method. And they were, and we're going to get into that in a second. But the yes. one thing I want to point out to here is yeah. one of the criticisms of 
Dei Verbum and the council in general by sort of traditionalist critics yeah. is that it was overly driven by an ecumenical concern of, yeah. of, of appeasement with Protestantism. Sure. Uh, the heck with the Eastern Orthodox, in a sense, we're more concerned with uh, the reform traditions. Mm -hmm. Right. With Protestantism. And yeah. it is true uh, that Pope John put uh, Bishop, I can't remember his name now, who was head of the Dicastery or the Congregation for Christian Unity. you know, he put him in charge of very key elements of the documents uh, that leading up to Dei Verbum. And so what is significant, therefore, about Dei Verbum and the Council Fathers saying, no, tradition does have a deep role to play in Revelation. Is that it gives the lie to this idea that the conciliar documents are simply sabotaged with little landmines that may, can allow us to read it in a Protestant direction. Right. The, the Protestants who were there, let's reiterate this, were deeply disappointed. Right? They didn't like what they saw and they didn't like what they saw because it reaffirmed Catholic teaching. Yes. OK, now let's put it this way. Uh, the council does. I mean, the two things were material sufficiency of scripture. And if you want to have tradition, that's okay. It kind of unfolds what we already know from scripture, though, kind of maintains it. And the other extreme, as you pointed out, is like there's two parallel trains on two parallel tracks. But if you take this, the idea of the, the everything, both scripture and tradition flows from the single revelation of God in Christ, organically, but but uh, sort of dialectically related with one another. All right, then what you end up with is a notion that okay, the the day verbum is saying you can maintain to an extent the material sufficiency of scripture for salvation, as long as you realize that the that tradition is almost in a virtual sense completely necessary in order to bring out those deeper truths. Because all by yourself, you know, just left alone with the Bible, you're not going to tease out all of these various truths of revelation. Therefore, tradition then becomes an absolutely necessary. So scripture might be sufficient, but it's not complete. It might be necessary, but it's not completely sufficient. You're going to need tradition to unfold these deeper riches. Yes. Uh, and so the council holds that as one possibility. It also holds out the possibility of kind of maintains an intention. Or you can say there are simply truths in, in tradition uh, that God has gifted to the church uh, via the Holy Spirit. Uh, that really are not in Scripture. And Dave Verbum kind of allows both point of views to sort of simply hang there. But at yeah. the end of the day, it maintains you can't you can't get on without Scripture, without tradition. You can't. Uh, that's right. no way. Yep. And you're right. That's an absolute refusal to capitulate to ecumenical pressure to, you know, etc. That's et right. And by the way, the analysis I'm giving and I can't recommend it more more highly. It's a short little book is from uh, Aidan Nichols' book, uh, Conciliar Octet, Eight Things. And the reason why I want to emphasize this is because Aidan Nichols is a Dominican, and he's a Thomist, and he's yep. a traditionalist, okay? But he's a Thomist and traditionalist, so open, very open-minded to the Resourcement School of Theology, loves Balthazar, did a lot of work on Balthazar. And that makes his voice, therefore, I think, a unique one as he approaches and interprets the council. He deeply appreciates the Thomistic currents of those who were concerned about certain progressive elements that he was. He loves the Thomists of that era, but he also recognizes their shortcomings. And this, yeah. I, I can't recommend that little text more more highly because I think he's really I think his analysis is very spot on almost always. Yeah, I like that book a lot too. And just a, just a reminder to the readers or the watchers, um, 
this is the guy who's written a book on Gary Lagrange and Baltazar. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So it's a, yeah. he's written a little book by Ignatius Press called Baltazar for Thomists, yes. uh, which is which yeah. is a good little book. He's yeah. written a, a kind of condensed summary of Baltazar's trilogy. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's Excellent. got those little books. Uh, they're very <laughs> long, though. I wouldn't recommend reading because by the time you get done reading Aiden Nichols' very long summaries, you might as well read Baltazar's trilogy. Read trilogy. Yeah, his little <laughs> book. I think the key to Hans or some Baltazar is better. I think than than the yeah. great. You know what is great? Before we move on about his little books that are summaries of Baltazar, though, is and it's it's I think it's called Scattering the Seed. I did a review for it. I think in Theological okay. Studies. It's his summary of Balthazar's doctoral dissertation, The Apocalypse of the German Soul. Yeah. It is brilliant. Yes. Absolutely brilliant. Yes. Uh, and what's good about it is it deals with the apocalypse of the German soul in the original dissertation form, which is much longer and much more detailed than the version that later gets published. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so Nichols has done us a tremendous service in, in dealing with that particular text of Balthazar's. But anyway, that's my little fervorino in favor of Nichols. So go ahead, Rodney. Back to good, Dave Erbel. Yeah, good a good uh, Nichols uh, plug, plug there. Um, just a, uh, yeah, just to, to kind of maybe put a bow on the, the tradition thing and scripture thing. It, it almost seems as if the text is, there's two quotes that I would just like to read from the text that I think are kind of interesting about kind of what maybe we could call sufficient. He says, therefore, Christ, the Lord, in whom the full revelation of the supreme God is brought to completion. So Christ is the completion of God's self-revelation. Commissioned to the apostles to preach to all men the gospel, which is the source of all saving truth and moral teaching. So it's the gospel that is the source of all the truth, which is why it would be right to say that is the immaculate conception implicit in the in the gospel? Absolutely. You know, yes. it has to be right. And then it says, and this is even more uh, stronger language, it says, now what was handed on by the apostles includes everything which contributes toward the holiness of life and increase in faith of the peoples of God everything right so the, the the apostolic preaching contains at least as you put it earlier in seed everything that is necessary for salvation and and, and flourishing right. and kind of all that stuff so it almost seems if you want to talk about the material sufficiency of anything you, you might want to say that it's the preaching of the church that's material sufficient which then again issues forth in scripture and in tradition and you know etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah uh, excellent yeah, I agree completely with everything you just said. <laughs> I'm a little distract, a little distracted right now. I don't know if you guys can hear it. My dogs are barking like crazy in the background, which means probably that the mailman has just delivered something to my front porch. I'm, I'm or, hoping or, that nobody delivers anything at my house for that very reason, because then you'll hear my dog barking in the background. <laughs> so we can pray that UPS stays. Either alive. that or it's just a leaf has blown the wrong way and, and the dogs are upset by that. So I yeah, don't know. She, Lucy doesn't like it when other dogs walk past our house. That's yeah. Really, she can't. She can't understand how they would have the audacity. It's dogness, but dogs are wonderful. They're proof of God's existence. Yes. I, but anyway, I, let's yeah. let's let's talk about something else now, because we we talked yes. to them about. Unless you want to add something more to what you just said, because I think that's all absolutely the relationship between scripture and tradition. Just to summarize, is Dave Verboom moves us beyond the two train tracks on 
two parallel things. You got factoids of truth in scripture and factoids of propositional truth on in, in tradition. And they they both kind of work together, but loosely. So that's a caricature, I know, but it's kind of the extreme of the one. But the other is the progressive point of view. Tradition doesn't tell us really much of anything. Scripture tells us everything. And so let's just do the Protestant thing and go with scripture. And Dave Erbum says, nope, word and deed. We propositions matter. Scriptures uh, and tradition need to be taken together as well. Uh, and uh, they both enlighten each other and so on. So let's move on then to this question of scriptural inerrancy, because I think this is a, a question that a lot of the viewers had after our last, the, the biggest question I think that people had. Yeah. What, what does, in a sense, Dave Erboom teach about the idea that the Bible contains absolutely no errors of any kind, of any fact, factual error, historical error of any kind. Right. Yeah. So this was another, it, it almost happened the same way as the tradition and scripture thing. There was like the original draft of De Fontibus. There was a big, big pushback almost in the opposite extreme. And then the council kind of finds a, I would say, a balance between the two between the two factions. I do want to say, though, that I, I don't want to give the implication that the council is always just some kind of mushy compromise between two things. It really does seem at times to be a beautiful balancing act. Well, rather- and in fact, Ratzinger says this in his commentary on Dave Erbom. says it can come across constantly as compromise, consensus, compromise. What he says, though, eventually happens is a brilliant synthesis. Yes, and again, it's oftentimes, again, they can do it because they reframe the question right, in, in a new way. And then that enables them to affirm kind of a couple of things at once. And it's actually testimony to the, the, the quest for truth that the council represented. Yes, there were factions. Yes, there were people uh, you know, who had deep-seated theological agendas and so forth at stake. But when one actually pays attention to the debates and then looks at what eventually came out of those debates, you begin to see that there was a genuine and deeply sincere desire to get it right. Okay. And that's Ratzinger's later point. They did get it right. They got it right. Yeah. They worked their butts off to get. They did. Ratzinger jokes somewhere that after like between sessions, they would all go to Trastevere and have beer. You know, I find it yeah. funny if they're in Rome, but they're drinking beer, of course, because they're German. You know, <laughs> Rodziger's hanging out. They're drinking. They're probably drinking Peroni. But why? Why Trastevere? Why not across the river? It's fairly close to the, you know, well, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I guess you just walk. It's it's just uh, which way is it? Uh, is it north of? South. Oh, it's south. Of Trastevere course. is south of the Vatican and on the oh, same yeah. side of the Tiber. But you just cross right over uh, the, the, the bridge across the Tiber into old Rome. And uh, maybe they just, you know, or you could go to Borgo Pio, which is a, a famous street right next to the Vatican. Yeah. But maybe there was no place to get good beer except in Trastevere. So <laughs> I have a bond remem- memory. I'll, this will be, I'll, this will be my last aside of. Uh, well, you, well, you and I both lived in Trastevere. So we yeah. both lived in Trastevere for a while. And uh, DC Schindler was visiting me for a little while. And we, re- we were at the uh, Immaculate Conception, you know, when the Pope comes down to the the, the uh spanish oh, the spanish steps, steps. yeah puts the wreath on mary and all that stuff we ran into none other than peter casarella and uh, and and some <laughs> other people there was a, also a person who used to work in the communio office we ran into like two people up there it was just totally unexpected and then all of us decided to take this walk 
from Trastevere to Vatican City to, to eat in this place that uh, Casarella, I think, recommended or something like that. So I have a fond memory of taking that walk. And it's kind of cool to think that Ratzinger and some of his the other parity were taking the walk in the opposite direction. But I know just, it's like the day I was wandering around Rome and ran into Adrian Walker and he was simply on a quest to find new oil and vinegar cruets for, for the dinner table at the Casa Bolsar. So we did that. For, and then he introduced me to my first shawarma sandwich at some Middle Eastern uh, little roadside thing. But anyway, let's not bore our listeners with tales of Rome. We are but the point of the story was that Yves Congar did not ever go on these jaunts. He stayed there and worked until the next session. Okay. Yeah. Good old Yves Congar working yeah. hard. Yeah, exactly. But anyhow, to go back to maybe that's the difference between, you know, the, the French and the Germans. <laughs> You would think it would be the opposite, actually. <laughs> you would but, think. Yeah, yeah. But anyhow, so so the 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 original De Fontibus had a very, very strong statement of what we would I would call plenary verbal inerrancy. Right. Um, which is kind of, I think, the language that Protestantism started using. You know, it's like if you were a if you were a certain kind of evangelical Protestant, you believed in plenary. I believe in plenary verbal inerrancy. <laughs> Right. Um, and this is what it says. So I'll just read from the document. It's a very it's not very long. It says because divine inspiration extends to everything, the absolute immunity of all Holy Scripture from error follows directly and necessarily. For we are taught by the ancient and constant faith of the church that it is utterly forbidden to grant that the sacred author himself has erred since divine inspiration of itself as necessary uh, as necessarily excludes and repels any error in any matter religious or profane as it is necessary to say that god the supreme truth is never the author of any error or whatever unquote now that is as about as strong a language as you're going to get of, of inerrancy um yeah. after that document of course was voted down there was a lot of debate on the floor and there were people who stood up and pointed out that they're this really bootstraps catholic biblical scholars because they run into these situations where they either discover two stories in the old testament told in two different books which contradict each other in details in in very kind of explicit ways or things that we've uncovered historically that make some of the details of the stories in the old testament implausible that this person was there at this time, you know, those kinds of things, right? So the biblical scholar spoke, spoke on the floor kind of pleading that that kind of really heavy language wasn't used because it puts the Catholic scholar in such an awkward position vis-a-vis -vis other scholars who have more flexibility with regard to inerrance. And yeah. did, were they also uh, also kind of appealing to Pius XII's encyclical Divino Flante Spiritu, which seemed to open the door a little bit? to the use of the, of, of the historical sciences and scriptural exegesis? Absolutely. In other words, how do you open the door to the use of the historical critical method, even in a limited way, and yet have this kind of language of, of no matter in, in any, in profane matters, inerrancy, right? You know, um, so uh, the, you know, they then wanted to say, inerrancy only in matters of salvation and only in matters pertaining to salvation was the proposal that came up after several of these scripture scholars right what was back. the very very uh, uh i don't know the, i can't remember the two two just two two latin words that meant truths of salvation period yeah, exactly yes 
So that then caused a big brouhaha in, in, in the floor and, you know, a lot of pushing on both sides. And, and let's stop for one second. And I didn't mean to keep interrupting you, oh, go ahead. but, but the concerns are, are real ones. In other oh, words, yeah. Because yeah. who gets to determine which of the truths of the Bible are truths of salvation and which are not? Absolutely. Can we say Noah's Ark is mythological and or that there might be certain historical errors in the between first Kings and first Samuel or Chronicles or whatever? Right. Yeah. Uh, can we say all that and say, OK, well, that's not pertaining to salvation. So the Bible can get away with being wrong about all that. It's 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 not as clear cut. In other words, the conservatives right. are saying it's not as clear cut as you're making it seem. And you're opening the door to the misuse of the historical critical method. And this is clearly what they're concerned with, because the historical critical method had important have had imported enlightenment based assumptions of fact value distinctions, which privileged a non-supernatural reading of the historical text yes. to such an extent that the methodology they adopted specifically excluded as historical any text that included the supernatural, right? Yes. which is a strange way of interpreting the New Testament from a Christian point of view. So yes. the Ottavianis are simply following on Pascende and Pius XII and its condemnation of modernism and saying, scorched earth, we're not going to have anything to do with this yep. because it's opening a can of worms. So that's kind of setting the stage for why they're so agitated here. Yes. And nevertheless, they lose. They lose. Okay. Yeah, digging in their heels. And uh, so after both sides kind of talk again, the famous compromise statement is, is, is offered in, in Dei Verbum. And, and I, I have it down here, so I'll read it. Therefore, since everything asserted by the inspired authors or sacred writers must be held to be asserted by the Holy Spirit, it follows that the books of Scripture must be acknowledged as teaching solidly, faithfully, and without error that truth which God wanted put into sacred writings for the sake of salvation. <laughs> so the slipperiness of this statement is it clearly is not they're not stating verbal plenary inerrancy. Right. But on the other hand, they're not saying the Bible is only true in matters of salvation. That's they, right. They don't like that either, because as you said, that opens up a whole can of worms. There are people that deny yeah. the of the entire Everything world. that is without error in terms of what God intended to put in there for our salvation, which yep. then leaves open the possibility that, okay, 99% of the Bible is what God wanted to put in there for our salvation, but yeah. there might and, and that includes hum, human, the human agents that, you yes. know, were cooperating with God. In the, but there might be a 1% element that involves like the corruption of the text via transmission sure. or mistranslations, which which happened during translation, yeah. uh, uh, that that kind of thing. Uh, or even they, allowing they, for the possibility of these things that uh, Old Testament scholars call doublets. Where yes, they're, dealing, yes. yeah, they're dealing with many different traditional texts, right? JEPD or whatever. I, yeah. I'm not I'm far I'm sure, sure I you know go down that path, but um it, it, you see it in Genesis with the Noah story where he's either taking two animals of every kind in a, a male and a female. And that, or the seven, clean and the unclean. And then one says he takes seven pairs. Yeah. of male, female, of every kind of animal. And you're like, well, is it one or seven pair? I mean, it's a big difference, right? But, but, but you know, yeah. they, they both. Well, in some ways, well, in some ways then in, in, 
in terms of this whole debate about historical accuracy, what's interesting about this is that Catholics who use historical critical method who are faithful, you know, faithful mm-hmm. Catholics, yes, uh, point <laughs> to these doublets. And, yeah. you know, like you might get the same story in Kings as you get in Chronicles and it's told a slightly, slightly differently or whatever. Yeah. All right. The, the presence of these doublets actually shows the historical accuracy of the Bible in one sense, because what it shows is that the editors, the Jewish rabbinic editors, whoever they were, that were the final redactors of the final texts, yeah. were more concerned with preserving the historical memories of Israel than they were with smoothing out the differences. In other words, they were trying to accurately put down on paper what they had received, what they had received in the Jewish historical tradition. And here we had these compete. Usually it involved texts from the north and texts from the south, from the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, each writing their own separate accounts. And the final redactors of the text are saying, both of these have historical merit, and we're going to toss them both in here. Okay. Yeah. Do we, do, does anybody seriously believe that the final redactors of the Old Testament were not well aware of those doublets? <laughs> right. Of right. course they were. Yes. And they left them in there anyway. And that's because right. they actually were not inventing, as some, as some like biblical minimalists say uh, from the, the school of biblical and of Old Testament scholarship and archaeology, they're called you know, Old Testament minimalists, who believe that the entire story of the Exodus and everything, and the King David, King Solomon, that none of those people were historical. All of it was written post-exile, when they came back, then in essence, the Jewish in faith gets invented after the Babylonian exile. Okay. Yeah. It yep. gets invented then. And all of this history is then reread back into the past. The Exodus never happened and so forth. Yes. And, and that's a misuse of the historical critical method. Absolutely. Right. And so what both and what's interesting is that Dave Fontibus and Dave Verboom, they both basically show the one thing Dave Verboom doesn't change about Dave Fontibus is it's it's chapter on the Old Testament's revelation. Yeah. And what's yeah. important. Anyway, I'm taking away your thunder here. So go ahead. No, no, no. That's great. No, that you're actually helping. You're, you're clarifying. Right. So so what I would say personally, and, and I'm open to correction or whatever, is I do. I think Dave Verbum intentionally does not teach plenary verbal inerrancy. I do think right. that they they do not want to say something as slim as it's only true in matters of salvation. They definitely don't teach that either. And they change that on purpose so that, 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 that it yeah. definitely and more it, it extends to more things in the Bible than simply matters of salvation. But it doesn't necessarily extend to every single jot and tittle. I think they wanted to give uh, biblical scholars a little bit of elbow room there, if I can put it that way. Somebody, That's right. On one of uh, one of your social media things that, uh, you know, the footnotes in that chapter, uh, you know, reiterate full verbal uh, plenary inerrancy. So I thought, oh, well, if that's the case, then maybe I should look into that. I looked into that and that just simply isn't the case. Every single one of those footnotes actually, well, two of them in that particular chapter deal with previous documents that actually support more of the truths of salvation but there is one that talks about inerrancy but it just simply says scripture contains revelation with no admixture of error okay 
uh, that scripture contains contains revelation. revelation. No, yeah, yeah. It, well, yeah, no one's disputing that. Nobody and Dave Verboom doesn't dispute that. We're not disputing that. Not at all. Uh, and the fact is, too, in all of this discussion of inerrancy, what Dave Verboom also wants to do and Dave Fontibus did not do. Yeah. And, and this goes to a, a limited acceptance of the historical critical method is to, in a sense, subtly deepen our understanding of what we mean by biblical inspiration and biblical inerrancy, that biblical inspiration isn't simply all, well, therefore it's all literal history and literal, that the biblical inspiration can include the use of various literary genres, yes. uh, various literary types, and therefore a big element of the historical critical method that's very, very helpful to us is yes. the identification of different literary genres in the Old and New Testaments. So that when you read the book of Revelation, for example, or certain aspects of the book of Daniel, you realize, oh, that's a genre we call apocalyptic. Yep. Okay. So then you don't end up with these crazy notions that you see in biblical dispensationalism in 20, 20th century. Oh, the 10 horns there in the book of Revelation, that's the common market. That was Hal Lindsay's late great planet Earth, right? The, the 10 horns represent the 10 nations of the European common market and the blah, blah, blah. You know, what nonsense. Okay. And that there, that right there is the product of a, of a flat footed literalism, not yeah. taking into consideration the genre of apocalyptic yeah. or that the Noah's Ark story might be a, the genre of sort of mythopoesis of some kind yeah. taking or, or a, the, the reworking of, of legends into a theological, a theological etiology of where we get languages and this, that, and the other thing. Yes, absolutely. That's uh, that's the two other qualifiers. Not only does it not affirm plenary verbal inerrancy, it also says we have to pay attention to literary forms, which gives you a, a wiggle room there that's going to also apply to the Gospels. I liked your what you were saying about uh, the South tells the story and the Northern Kingdom tells the story. Yeah, and the, yeah. Guys have such a high regard for their sacred traditions. They're going to put them both in there, even though obviously they realize their tension with each other. But, there, but as soon as you start speaking about history in the light of certain current concerns, you're always going to tell shape the story so that it's relevant yeah. to the concerns. And this is, of course, we're going to see this in the Gospels. Mark, Events get telescoped. Yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, Luke has a different set of worries than Matthew. And that's why Matthew is going to uh, emphasize the mosaic nature of Jesus's ministry and things like that. And Luke isn't, you know, and why Matthew needs the Sermon on the Mount to be on a mount and Luke doesn't need it to be on a mount. You know, so if, if you get yeah. too hung up yeah. on those things, you're like, well, wait a second, was it on the plane or was it on the mount? You know, it's the same sermon, basically, you know, it's uh, so but so the, in allowing people to interpret these things in the light of these various literary forms, but then also later on when it talks about the Gospels, it says, um, we understand that the writers of the Gospels wrote these things to churches with various concerns in place. So we don't, we're not saying that they're telling the exact, you know, history with no interpretation or anything. That's right. That would, That's right. That would be to expect something of them. It would be a modern scientific understanding of history, which is nonsense anyhow. You know, even historians don't ever rise to that level. That's know? right. Yeah. Uh, one thing, though, and, and I'm not certain uh, to what extent, uh, I mean, Dave Erboom doesn't deal with this at all. This is just an interest of mine. There's yeah. uh, recently, I mean, uh, let's back up a second. It was all the rage among certain members of, of a more liberal revisionist 
camp in the historical critical school of thought in both Protestant and Catholic circles. Yeah. There, there was a tendency to view the Gospels as almost complete constructs of the later church, yeah. Yeah. who, you know, so that you end up like with the Jesus seminar with John Dominic Crossan and Robert Funk and guys like this, who essentially said there are maybe only 10% of the sayings of Jesus in the New that are really from him. The rest yeah. are all inventions of the early church in their Zitzimleben, their situation. And that was so big. Remember that when you were yes. studying, what was the Zitzimleben? The Zitzimleben of this, uh, this uh, pericope is uh, blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah. oh my God. So now there's recent scholarship from people like Richard Balcom and others. Uh, yeah. Jesus and the Eyewitnesses was a very eye-opening book to me and others. Yeah that there is increasing evidence, almost incontrovertible evidence, that the Gospels were actually part of a, speaking of literary genres, very, very close to what in the early Roman period there, they would have considered biographies. Yes. Not biographies in the full modern sense, but closer to the sense of biography in the full modern sense than than the liberals would have us believe. That they actually really were trying to tell us, here's who Jesus of Nazareth was. Here's where he lived, what he did, what he said. All right. And, and, you know, and that they got it mostly right. Yes. You know. Yeah. And, and Dave Verbum says that, you know, it, yeah. even in the light of all these things, acknowledging that they chose to write about some things and not others, acknowledging that they were writing to ecclesial situations, they still told us the truth about who Jesus was and did. And, right. and I think that's absolutely crucial. To, if you start treating these things as just in literary inventions to meet theological needs, I mean, that would that doesn't even fit on the on the level of of. It's not even common sense. I mean, there there's so many things that all the gospels contain, you know, that that are that are yeah. common. You know, you can you can sit down and fixate on the things they're different on, but you also have to pay attention to how much their commonality there is. And of course, they may have used each yeah. other. I don't have any problem with that. Either way, it's not like they're all telling four wildly different stories. I mean, that just that just not come down at all. Um, well, in fact, if these things are merely merely concoctions of the later church. Yeah. The small sort of discrepancies between the four Gospels is hard to explain. Yes. Because then if, if it's merely concoctions of the later church, there would be homogenizing processes already at work. Absolutely. Which you later see already in the second century with script Christians saying, well, we need this diatessera. We need this. Yes. We need this. Uh, we need this. We need to harmonize the four gospels into one because there are these subtle differences that are giving us a, a, a apologetical problems with Roman pagans and so on and so yeah. forth. But once again, just as with the old Testament redactors preserving all the historic, the small differences between the gospels only underscores the fact what these guys were doing were taking the sources that were in front of them and doing their damn best to preserve them and pass them on. Yes. I mean, as Luke says at the beginning of his gospel, dear Theophilus, after making an investigation into the various sources, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I have compiled this record for you. Yes. Okay. So he, he wasn't saying uh, I sat down with Paul and he recounted to me what he heard from Peter and so on. No, but it's implied. I'm, I, I went to apostolic sources, and this is what yeah. I got. Yeah, absolutely. There's. I can't think of the scholar's name right now. He's really important. Uh, he wrote a book called The Gospels as Eyewitness Testimonies. And what he points out, and this is, I think, really helpful, is precisely what you get from eyewitness testimonies is the same basic story with 
differences here and there. That's how oh, yeah. testimonies work because we always are intent. We're always intending when we report on events. You might pay attention to one thing and I might pay attention to another. That doesn't mean that we're our, our, our accounts are contradictory. It means that we were focusing on different things. And yes. some things, therefore, that I wasn't focusing on, if I have to add them in there, I'm, they're not going to have the clarity as the things that you were focusing on. That's I think right. About, I think about, you know, you, you and I are football fans. I will watch games sometimes. And if I get so caught up in the competition, like I want Penn State to win, obviously, and they're losing, I'm not paying attention to what kind of defensive scheme maybe Ohio State is, is using when they're playing against them. There are guys that do analyze games that are more objective observers. And when I sit down and watch, read their yeah. commentaries on Sunday after I've watched the game, I'm like, oh, I didn't realize Ohio State had seven men in the box the whole damn game. You know, it's like no wonder Penn State couldn't run it or, or whatever, you know, that 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 sort of thing. So it's the same thing. There's a, how are you watching? I watched the That's same right. game you did, but they saw things I didn't see. And I'm or sure better I like. If Nebraska were to play Penn State and you and I were to sit down unwisely and watch it together, <laughs> all right, the same penalty called by a referee on one. Oh, penalty, absolutely. If it was called on Penn State, you'd be, that's okay. BS, man. And I'd be like, oh, that was a completely legitimate call. <laughs> that's great. Um, yeah, boy, he yeah. was holding. Come on. But no, and, that, and that's yeah. not to disparage eyewitness testimony at all. It's no. to show that, yes. What the Gospels record is precisely, like, especially I think the resurrection accounts. Oh yeah. All right. If the if the if the apostles simply got together and said, "Okay, we got to get something going here. We're yeah. losing our mojo, baby. We need to come up with some kind of narrative of a cosmic Christ." Paul's been talking about this cosmic Christ. That sounds good. All yeah. right. So let's let's invent now these. Uh, out of out of the empty tomb traditions, let's now invent a post-resurrection appearances. They would yeah. have airbrushed out several things. They would have airbrushed out that the first witnesses were women. Oh yeah, uh, right. Absolutely. They would have airbrushed out. Okay, did he first appear to them in Galilee or in Jerusalem or yeah. these yeah. kinds of things? Yep. So, but the, what they actually read like are real attempts to preserve eyewitness historical memories Absolutely. with the kind of breathless excitement that you would expect. Uh, yeah. You know. Oh, my God, we saw the Lord. That yeah. kind of breathless excitement actually argues for their authenticity. C.S. Lewis wrote about this as well. And yeah. Richard Balcom makes this point, too, in you know his book, uh, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, that's yeah. all simply a footnote to what we've been discussing, discussing with regard to Dave Erboom. Uh this is the con you know, this is the context that Dave Erboom is working in here, open yes. to historical critical exegesis, but also wanting to hold the line on yes. the fact that the, the scriptures give us reliable, deeply reliable information about God, Absolutely. you know, that we, that we can take to be without error within, yeah. within the limits of certain things. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah. And, and, and if we're done, I mean, do you, I, I kind of feel like we've, we've pretty much done that. You can go back to it if you want, but there's one other thing that I didn't want us to miss that we didn't. Oh, sure. Go ahead. That we didn't talk about last time. And, uh, Actually, it's maybe a couple of points, but one especially comes to mind is the way the document treats the Old Testament. And uh, what's really striking is it's their reading of the Old Testament is absolutely Christocentric. They make no bones about it. The Old Testament is of interest to Christians precisely because it, it is finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. That's right. And when read in the light of the resurrection, it takes on a whole new meaning. 
There's no pretense on the part of the council to say that we are reading the Old Testament according to the intention of the authors or something like that. I mean, it, 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 it and that's it doesn't really address that problem, but it is not shy about saying we're going to read this thing in the light of the fact that Jesus popped out of the grave. And in hindsight, now we're going to be able to see that this text takes on a new meaning that it would not have had, you know, for no. the Israelites because they could have never guessed, you know. And that's really interesting because what you see after the council in Catholic Old Testament scholarship usually is an absolute refusal to read the Old Testament Christologically. It's almost like you're doing something anti-Semitic if you're reading if you're reading the scriptures of Israel this way, you're imposing this thing on and we're going to get to the author's intent. We're going to through the historical we're really yeah. going to yeah. And so the language like First Testament and Second Testament instead oh, yeah. of Old Testament and the, the very use of the phrase Old Testament was deemed. Oh, you can't yeah. you can't say that. I mean, when I was at Fordham, it was Hebrew scriptures and Christian scriptures, not yeah. Old and New Testaments. And funny thing is Hebrew scriptures. Who says that? No, not the, the it's Jews. It's an invention don't. of Christians. And no, actually, yeah. it's an invention of liberals. <laughs> I yeah. should say. Right, exactly. Jews would call their scriptures the Hebrews. What the heck are you talking? That's a total. And I want I want to say something too, very interesting in this regard, and it's not in Day of Arabo. And right. I, I and I, I, with all due, believe me, you won't find a more philo-Semitic person in the world than myself. And my yeah, class yeah. of a, not an anti-Semitic bone in my body. I deplore every form of it. Yeah. Nevertheless, I think <clears throat> something has to be pointed out, which is it's it's very possible that Judaism would have simply become a, 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 a completely tiny little sect tucked away somewhere in the Middle East, mm-hmm. scattered a little bit here in, in Europe, had it not been for Christianity. In fact, it was the spread of Christianity around the world that gave the Old Testament its universal significance. Mm-hmm. Had Christianity not spread around the world mm-hmm. after the Roman Empire destroyed Israel and Jews were scattered to the four winds and had Christianity never happened, mm-hmm. yeah, you'd have had Jewish monotheists scattered here and there in the world. And maybe, just maybe, Jewish monotheism would have caught on, caught on fire and spread around the world on its own. We would never know. But the fact is, and, you know, with all due respect to the fact that Christians persecuted Jews like crazy to our to our, you know, condemnation. The fact is, it is precisely the Christian reading of the Old Testament that gave the Old Testament its universal significance around the world. I think that's good. And what I've learned from reading uh, Jewish Christian dialogue is we're often under the 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 uh, the impression that what we have is a dialogue between a Christian reading of the um, Tanakh and then uh, uh, the, the actual reading of the Tanakh. But what these guys point out but on both sides of the aisle of the debate is that neither Judaism nor Christianity are the religion of the Old Testament. That's Jude- right. You know, right. right. I mean, Judaism is very different from, from the religion of the Israelites in 1000 BC. Yeah. And- uh, Ro- Ratzinger makes this point where he yeah. says, the kind of Judaism that survived the fall of Jerusalem in 70 yeah. AD was yeah. essentially rabbinic, rabbinic, Judaism. R- rabbinic uh, synagogue-based uh, yeah. Judaism, right. uh, nation-based, temple-based, <laughs> all right, monarchy-based Judaism was dead. Yeah. Oh. So you have two religious traditions, in other words, that grow out of these scriptures. 
this notion that therefore we Christians are doing something wonky when we read the scriptures in the light. It's just nonsense because even the Jews today don't read it the way th that the Israelites would have read. I mean, it's, it's, it's that, that's, that, that's key. And I think that's a, that's a, that's an, no, it's, it's a very, it's a very key point. And so what, yeah. to bring it back to Dave Verb, Dave Verbum is saying, we have to read the old Testament Christologically. Yes. Uh, and, and that's, that, that's the only proper hermeneutical key for the, for the entirety thing. And thus it brings it back to chapter one. Revelation is the word of God in Christ. Ultimately, the hermeneutical key to understanding everything, history, yeah. theology, the Old Testament, ourselves, the church, the sacraments, yeah. Christ. Yes. All right. And what Christ reveals to us, obviously, as well about the Father and the Spirit. And so, but Christ. So when we say a we don't mean a Christomonism. That's yeah. what Balthazar accused Karl Barth of flirting yeah. with a yeah. Christological reductionism, but right. Christ is the venue through which we get to the Trinitarian God. Yes. And the key to the meaning of history, then. So to go back to that salvation historical approach, yeah, it's, it's the key to the meaning of history, which is, a, again, something that I think the progressives are going to want to distance themselves from when they, they start embracing, embracing religious pluralism. We'll see this with some of those other later documents. Yeah. Um, and, and seeing Jesus as one savior figure among many yeah. and things like that. The council that, doesn't support and, that. And the flip side to this, too, is you, you have the liberal sort of, you can't refer to the Old Testament as anything other than this mm -hmm. completely intact Jewish thing that has no Christian intent whatsoever. How hegemonic of you, you know, how you've, that's cultural co-optation and so on. Yes, all yes, right. yes, that's, yes. that's all bad. But yeah. equally bad, too, there were, I don't want to, paint a straw man here, but there were tendencies in the neo-scholastic school as yeah. they approached the Old Testament. They didn't read it Christologically either. They read it more as a propedeutic to the New Testament, as a kind of prophecies, all right? See how the New Testament fulfills these Old Testament prophecies. Yes. Yep. And there, this is where a certain Christian anti-Semitism does arise, yes, because yes. the idea is that once those prophecies are fulfilled, that, that, that the Old Testament was simply a preparatio in terms of prophecies and so forth. Yes. Once all of that is fulfilled, superseded, Judaism it has yeah. no yes. nothing anymore. Yeah. And Absolutely. so we're going to mine the Old Testament for moral commandments and prophecies, but all the other stuff is just useless. Yes. Right. Yes. And that leads to anti-Semitism. Right. And an extreme supersessionism, which the council is going to, of course, push back on. And, uh, yeah. and I just wanted to say one other thing, too. Uh, there's there's an awesome essay by Dennis Farkas Falvey, I think is his name, um, in the Vatican, uh, the, 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 the book on Vatican II edited by Matt Levering and the late mm. Matt Lamb. Yeah. And that I would highly recommend that essay by Farkas Falvey to anybody who wants to think about these questions, especially of inerrancy and inspiration. That's what he focuses on. But he actually complains a little bit that the council doesn't say anything about the uh, the uh, Jewish scriptures in their own right. And he thinks that's actually something it should have done. In other words, it is important that we realize that it can be read in another way. And it's also important that we educate ourselves in the historical intent. I, I agree with that completely, yeah. because Balth yes. if we read Balthazar's two volumes at the end of the aesthetic, Old Testament, yeah. New Testament, yeah. what he points out quite clearly, he approaches the he uses historical critical stuff and he reads the Jewish scriptures from within the authorial intent and form 
uh, critical elements of of those scriptures at that time and yes. what their motivations were. And what he says is that what what the Old Testament presents us with is a series of images, a series of icons, a series of pictures that that remain in tension with one another and are not reducible to one another. So you've yes. got monarchy and prophecy. Those two things are often at odds with one. It's no accident that the high point of the great prophets was at the same time as the high point of the monarchy, because the mm -hmm. prophets are there to, you know, sick transit gloria mundi. You, you know, you are corrupting why it is. Mm -hmm. All right. And, and so and then that stands somewhat in tension then later with synagogue, rabbinic Judaism, the wisdom, suffering, literature, servant. suffering yeah. servants. And so yeah. you get you get yeah. monarchical. Uh, icons, temple icons, prophecy icons, synagogue icons, wisdom literature icons, and none of them are ultimately synthesizable into right. a single and only Christ. Then we see this and synthesizes properly. So this is pure genius in my regard, yeah. because what Balthazar has done is to show two things. Number one, how the Jewish scriptures can be read just on their own terms. Mm -hmm. as Jewish scriptures, but yeah. then in and through precisely reading them as in their historical context, as yeah. in some ways the preparation for the only thing that makes sense out of any of them, which is yeah. Christ. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. That's excellent. Yep. Uh, and then I just had one other uh, thing, which now I think we've literally touched on every single chapter, which is pretty impressive. Uh, in one, in one, I'm not sure we did them in order, but we, I think, we've I think this episode is much better than our first attempt at this. Let's just, well, I, th I think the first episode was great in the sense that we put that we did the background and that historical yeah, we did. Yeah. That we did, I thought, I thought yeah. it was excellent. But the chapter that we haven't talked about is chapter six. And I just had a, a maybe like a, oh, let's do it. We're here. Let's do it. There's a couple of things to say about this that I thought were, were interesting. And it goes back to something that we said earlier that when you, treat the matter simply defensively against Protestants, against modernists, and you frame the debate that way, you're going to miss some things that are really important because you've kind of closed your eyes to all these other problems. And so we we refer to this as the kind of counter-reformational uh, reaction that does it, then that kind of closes its eyes off to the fullness of the Catholic faith. But the chapter six is really beautiful about the role of scripture, the ongoing role of scripture in the church and it refers to scripture in a quasi-sacramental sense. It has this beautiful passage where it says, the bread of life is given to us in the liturgy from two tables. Yes. I love that. Yes, I love it. That means when the priest is reading scripture, he's doing something sacramental, which is why, by the way, only the priest should read the gospel, right? Uh, or right. a deacon. Yeah, he's on it. Yeah. Um, because it's a sacramental, he's acting in persona Christi. He's these are that's the right. very words of Christ. I mean, it's the gospel, right? That's that's yeah. that's key there. And so there's this danger in a kind of strictly counter-reformational kind of Catholicism, where we get this idea that because we have the Eucharist, we'll let Protestants preach and study Scripture. That's that only yeah. Protestants care about. That's right. Scripture. We already have the tradition to tell us what it means. We already have the Eucharist, which gives us Christ himself. Why do we need to sit around reading scripture? <laughs> right. You know what? And yeah. along these lines, I have long believed that yeah. we should not refer to the first part of the mass as liturgy of the word 
followed mm. by the liturgy of the Eucharist. The entire mass is the liturgy of the Eucharist. I think mm. we need to come up with with a different kind of because it makes how many Catholics therefore say, okay, that's they're just reading scripture there. That's just liturgy of the work. Yeah. The real good part that I want to get to, the real yeah. presence. Well, now, okay, now we're at it. Now we're up in it. Okay. Yeah. And to think of it as two tables from which we receive the bread of yeah. life yeah. is, is, is really, it's helped me as a Catholic to kind of recognize that because I tend to zone out during the first half, usually because I find the homilies not so great. <laughs> you, <laughs> you go to the, you go to an ordinary parish. His, their homilies are good. And we have great homilies. Say, my, I, the priest on Sunday at, at St. Tommy were hit it out of the park. Yeah. He was, he was awesome. But a lot of times it leaves a lot to be desired. But that's precisely my point. A lot of times it's almost these traditional Catholics are the ones that don't really bother preparing a sermon and stuff like that, because that's a Protestant thing. I, I always, almost think they think that. And uh, I really, really think that Catholics need to work on preaching better homilies, scripture based uh, homilies with some with some. Oh yes, our good mutual, our good mutual friend, Father John Gribowicz, is involved in a project right now to do uh, just that—to yes. increase the quality of homiletics in the church. Uh, it's got to be done because I'll tell you why. If we're talking about words and deeds again, it goes back to that. Uh, there's a sense in which the Eucharist is a deed, right? It's a, it's a it's an event. It's a drama. The priest, this is my body, and it's all mm -hmm. it's all action. It's like a it's a it's a drama. But if you don't understand the meaning of the action, you get hung up on the sign and you forget about the signified. Without good preaching, the church becomes a sacrament mill and the sacraments become magic. That's right. Sheer acts of magic with no inner meaning, right? <laughs> with, which, which require no faith, right? It's just, so that's why this. The, the, I love this sixth chapter because it really well, I, I, I have a story, a little anecdote, though. So yeah. even delay our end of that's that's extreme. It's instructive about something about the church. I, as my viewers know, I'm a laicized deacon. I did spend almost a full year as a deacon in yeah. 1985 to 86. And so I was stationed at the cathedral parish in Arlington, Virginia, <clears throat> and I would preach at masses as a transitional deacon. Now, I'm yeah. going to toot my own horn. Yes, I was a very good homilist. I was an excellent homilist. All right. <laughs> I told I got good theology in there all the while being a little bit humorous and so forth. People loved my homilies. So at first I preached one one Sunday a month. But by the end of my time there, I was preaching every Sunday because the rector of the cathedral had noticed that every single time I preached, donations went up. <laughs> <laughs> that says something about the church, right? He did, at first he didn't care as he was listening to me preach whether or not what I was saying was worth a damn. Yeah. What he noticed was how the envelopes, the the amount in them went up. All right, every single time I preached, so he's a deacon chap is going to preach now at every at every liturgy. Now I don't know how that pertains to what we're talking about here, but it only goes to show. I'll say this: I think cat all. The motives of my the rector of the cathedral, notwithstanding, Catholic lay people want good good preaching. They do. They do. And we're so many priests. I don't know what it's like now, but when I was in seminary, you were told, "Oh, just tell stories. Uh, yeah. Don't do theology. They don't right. want theology." You know what? That's all complete nonsense. BS. It's nonsense. absolute nonsense. Yes. You're dealing with an educated laity who end yeah. up then comparing comparing a third grade level of their knowledge of the faith with yeah. an adult level knowledge of everything else. Yes. And of course, then it's the faith that comes across looking simplistic, infantile, regressive, old yep. fashioned. 
All right. You need priests with intellect up yes. there preaching intellectual ideas out of the scriptures, out right. of the scriptures opened up for them. Oh, you yep. got me on a rant now, man. No, it's, it's true because that's right. There are intellectuals in the world of journalism out there who are definitely going to be teaching people things. Yes. It, it, and, that, and that's so if you don't teach them something in church, it's not that they're not going to not believe anything. They're going to believe, you know, the people that are teaching. Them. And yeah. uh, you and I have both had this experience that every professor of theology in a Catholic school, some places had this experience where you yeah. you you do a kick butt job in a class at end of class. Two or three students come up to you and say, this is the first time I've ever heard anything like this. Why don't we get this kind of stuff at church? Yes. And it, you know what? And it's not tuning our own horns. They should be getting this stuff at church. Yeah, These guys absolutely. are taught things like this in seminary. Don't tell me that they're not. There's good theology right. taught in seminaries these sure. days. Yeah. So why is that not translated into right. good preaching? That's yeah. what I want to know. Right. No, I, I I totally agree. And 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 I thought so. I, that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring up this thing. Uh, I mean, the, it says in in chapter six, ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. Bingo. That is bam, right? So that's a that's an indictment against this mentality that some Catholics have. And on both, this is this is something you get both from trads who say lay people don't need to know scripture. That's only the priest business, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Or you get it from progressives who yeah, obviously don't want to preach scripture because they probably don't believe it, you know. So so I, I thought that was a powerful thing. Well, the the, what thing, they go ahead, oh, go, go ahead, ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, I was gonna say a difference between sermon and a homily. A homily opens up the scriptures. A sermon just uses one phrase from a, from a scripture thing and uses as a catalytic jumping off point to talk about what they really want to talk about that day. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, no, the anyway. thing that made the homily so good on Sunday was the guy really did a beautiful job with that Mark passage, tied it into the Job passage. I mean, he, it was, it was very good. In fact, I ended up using it in my Monday lecture because I'm teaching Christology, I actually use that Mark passage to show my students the difference between narrative events and uh, uh, historical events and how the Gospels are kind of negotiating that. But the other piece in that chapter six that is really great, I think, is the fact that who are our guides in, in reading and understanding scripture? And they say the fathers from the East and the West, um, yes. which, is, which is something I think is, again, a, a step beyond, in some sense, neo-scholastic approach to scripture and even, you know, to go back to the fathers and let them teach us how to read scripture again. And again, yes. this is something once the council is over and, and, and theology departments in the West are doing their thing, this never happened to me at Marquette. My scripture classes, I three of them, um, almost never refer to patristic exegesis. No, mine either. I had three, three, four scripture courses in the yeah. doctoral studies at Fordham, both yeah. Marquette and Fordham, about the same during that era, Jesuits. Yeah. And yeah. it was all the usual garbage. Historical critical. Just and not that I, I'm glad I learned that stuff, but it's, yeah. it wasn't that was not balanced with anything else. Um, there was no sense at all in which it was appropriate to read the Old Testament Christocentrically. There was no sense in all in which you needed to study the fathers. They were just a bunch of allegorizers, eisegesis, you know, blah, blah, blah. No, you raise so, a, a very important point. I'm glad I learned that stuff, too, because that's am, so prevalent. In other words, you can go to a school that might just give you, uh, well, De Lubach retrieved the four senses of Scripture. So you're, yeah. we're going to learn that or you know, we're going to read the fathers. And that's all well and good. Sure. But 
I think you can only appreciate those things in a second naivete, so to speak. Once you have passed through the crucible of learning all that other stuff, which does have some merit. I mean, it does have some value. All right. And you learn it and you say, okay, this is how these guys are thinking. Then you can really appreciate. Here's what the fathers were doing. And I would say then, just as a plug for uh, the late Joseph Ratzinger, um, Pope Benedict, um, his Jesus of Nazareth is an absolute brilliant uh, bringing together of theological uh, reading of scripture, patristic exegesis, and also a very interesting knowledge of the historical critical method. And an appreciation for guys like Boltmann, with whom he often disagrees, but and all that stuff. Um, I would also make a plug here for the new Word on Fire Bibles, uh, which are beautiful with beautiful illustrations, but also some people complain about this because you're reading along and the narrative is frequently interrupted by commentaries. Yeah, some wow. by Bishop Barron, but others, and some yeah. will be from the church fathers. Yeah. I and, and they've just come out with the Pentateuch as well. I think that it's a brilliant coming right. to get for an average layperson to get some sense of the commentaries from the fathers. You get commentaries from Augustine, from Aquinas thrown in there as well. So, yeah, yeah there read Rotzinger's Jesus of Nazareth, get a word on fire study by. I mean, yeah, the, the sources are out there. Yes, they really are. There's some really good. Finally, Catholic biblical scholarship being done. I want to give a shout out to like guys like that, Petre, Bergsma. Um, I have their introduction to the Old Testament. And Larry, it is astoundingly good. And it's I thought I thought separate. Hans Bergsma was was a Protestant. No, no, no. John John Bergsma. It's not Hans. Uh Borsma, oh, okay. if you're thinking of uh Borsma. Yeah, yeah, that's Ber- right. You're right. I, think, I, I, yeah. I have the name right. Bergsma. It's, oh, it's, yeah. You've got Balcom, Borsma. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I so can't keep all my B scholars straight. Yeah. Now, Balcom is a Protestant. Borsma is a Protestant. But you're yeah, you're right. You're talking about John Bergsma, I believe. Yeah, and, yeah. And he's Brent Catholic. Petre. Brent Petre. I met him at a Word on Fire conference, Brent Petre. His books yeah. are fantastic. And what he's, a great guy. Really he gave an amazing talk. An amazing well, talk. Yep, an act last year, too. He gave, 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 both of them gave great talks. Yeah, and then the guy at the JP2 Institute in Washington, D.C. Oh, Joe Atkinson. Yeah, great, awesome. great scholar. Yeah, Dennis Farkas Falvey. Yeah, guys yeah. like this. Yeah, there's some Farkas good scholars. Falvey. There's some great. Uh, and also, I would highly recommend reading the the volumes on the Gospel of Matthew from Levi Erasmo and Mary Kakis. Oh, yeah. yeah. Father Simeon now at Monastery yeah. in Spencer, Massachusetts. Beautiful stuff. Yeah. 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 Maybe so, we should. Uh, good. You have anything else you want to no, add? No, we've been at this a while. This is our longest one so far, but it's good. I Well, you know what? Thank you so much, Rodney, for doing all of that research. One oh, of the I, downsides. I, I mean, I did a podcast yesterday morning with Gavin Ashenden. I did one yesterday afternoon with uh, Andrew Prediprin and Bobby Mixa. Then I did one last night with Sean Mitchell. You know, I, I'm doing so many of these things. I don't always have time to prep for them as I should. So thank you so much for doing the prep work on this. Well, it's been good for me because going back to these documents again and really digging in, I, I like getting in the weeds. And uh, so this is this is a this is both, I think, something that hopefully will be of service to the people watching, but also I think to us just growing yes. our understanding. Yes. And so our next one, hopefully you know, next week is Ash Wednesday. The beginning of Lent. We won't be doing one, probably not, but maybe in two weeks we'll do one on Lumen Gentium which yeah. uh, I think the two most important documents in the council, theologically right. speaking, are Dei Verbum Illumina Gentium. 
Yep. Eventually, we need to talk about Sacrosanctum Concilium uh, in, the, in the liturgy. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for joining us all. And thank you, Rodney, for being here today. Let me see about. Uh, all right. I have to figure out. Okay. Stop recording is right here.